The city of Cleveland last week announced a shakeup in its public safety leadership after Public Safety Director Kerry Howard resigned. His departure comes as the city sets its budget priorities for the year, including recruiting and filling many openings in the police department. Ideastream's criminal justice reporter Matt Richmond joins us to start the hour. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. Later, the Ohio Department of Transportation is installing technology to better warn drivers when traffic's slowing down or coming to a stop. The goal is to cut down on crashes like the one that involved a Tusky Valley charter bus last fall. And the Brecksville Broadview Heights gymnastic team is going for its 21st consecutive state title, the longest state winning streak in the country. We'll talk to Coach Maria Schneider. Those conversations are coming up. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for joining us. There has been a change at the top of public safety leadership for the city of Cleveland. Last Friday, Public Safety Director Kerry Howard resigned, which the city said was effective immediately. In a statement, Mayor Justin Bibb announced Chief of Police Wayne Drummond would step in as the interim public safety director. Drummond's chief of staff, Deputy Chief Dorothy Todd, was tapped as the new chief of police. These changes come as the city is in the middle of budget hearings with council and while the city is trying to augment its recruitment efforts to fill its police ranks. Joining me now to talk about the leadership changes and other public safety and policing issues making news, I'm joined in studio by Ideastream Public Media's criminal justice reporter, Matt Richmond. Matt, good morning to you. Thanks good morning, for coming Jenny. in. Good morning. Always great to have you. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question about this topic, call us toll free, 866 578 0903, or email us at soi at You can tweet us. We are at Sound of Ideas. Matt, was the departure of Kerry Howard a surprise last week? Uh, it was a surprise in the sense that it came suddenly. He he was, uh, you know, the only holdover from Mayor Frank Jackson's um, administration in a in a director spot. So you know he had survived that far, and um, you know the fact that uh, he was, you know, he he there was a press statement from the city on the, on Friday morning, and he was gone that, that day. So in, in that sense, it was pretty surprising. The urgency or kind of immediacy of yeah, the resignation? Yeah, the uh, suddenness, and there was no, you know, there were no big events that, uh, you know, made it obvious that, that he was going to have to go. But then again, there is a lot of backdrop to this story and a series of events that seemingly... Um, at least preceded this event. Okay, let's talk about what may have led up to Howard's resignation. Yeah, so on on February 16th, um, uh, Saturday, his assistant public safety director, Jakima Dai, who's someone who's kind of, who worked with him in the city prosecutor's office, and then when he moved to public safety, she came and worked in his office, and then she's had a series of higher-level positions. So they're very closely tied together. And she had been using a, a city car and gotten in a, in a looks like a pretty serious accident in Warrensville Heights. And it was a, it was a weekend. She had her kids in the car, which is against city policy. Um, and, you know, then shortly after that, the kind of the attention shifted to Carrie Howard. Uh, uh, a, um, I think it was like the third Thursday or Wednesday after um, Fox Eight went to his office and asked him about what had happened with his assistant director, and you know he came out and said uh, something along the lines of like, "Well, we didn't really know about that rule. I have broken that rule, and the police break the rules all the time, more or less." And within a day, he was gone. He had, he had resigned. So essentially, he kind of justified or defended the use of a police car with kids in tow, um, and she got into this accident. Um, so, so, so that kind of led up to at least the day that he resigned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that was the most immediate event. You know, there was something a little while before that. Also, him in a city, uh, Carrie Howard in a, in a city vehicle 
was pulled over, I believe it was in Orange, in a, in a suburb, uh, kind of late at night for rolling through a, a stop sign. The, the officer and, you know, the, the body cam from the officer who pulled him over quickly made its way into the media. And, you know, the officer asked him why he was driving a, a city car at that hour. And Carrie Howard gave some explanation that he had been on a safety patrol on the east side of a Cleveland. So that went into the news there. You know, going back to when he was appointed safety director. Um, when was that? 2020 under the previous mayor, uh, under Mayor Jackson. And, you know, uh, the the previous safety director, Mike, Mike McGrath, he had come under a lot of uh, criticism from the monitor overseeing the uh, consent decree and, and from the Department of Justice for uh, being, they said, lenient on, on police discipline. And he, he retired and Howard was appointed. And, you know, shortly after that, I mean, in, in less than a year, the, uh, the patrolman's union came out and started criticizing Howard for what they viewed as now excessive discipline. And they said that he was making these decisions based on politics, based on pressure from the, from the Department of, of Justice. And this was around the time of the election and basically said, we're going to be watching the next mayor because we don't think that Kerry Howard should, should be in this, in this role. And was it because the pendulum had kind of swung between the previous safety director, who you just said was more lenient on police activity kind of behavior, and then Howard comes in and is, according to your reporting, seemingly more strict or, uh, you know, kind of acting more? Yeah, by by all our sons, I mean, there was more... Um, they the city started publicizing firing officers who who were mis misbehaving, mm. and some of the uh, disciplinary actions that that they were taking. The monitor started sort of uh, you know issuing reports saying they seem to have kind of fixed this this problem. They seem to be applying discipline, you know, the way it's it's supposed to be applied. So there was tension between mm-hmm. the police union and Kerry Howard. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Almost immediately. And, you know, and then I need to remember, too, when, when, when Mayor Bibb came in, I mean, he, he kept Howard. But, you know, they he held the the focus became on why there aren't enough officers and, and an increasing crime rate. And then you saw the um, the public safety summit where he sort of, you know, brought in the union leaders and noticeably Kerry Howard was not in those was not, you know, at the press conferences where they were announcing their their, their agreements. Hmm. So, you know, you could see a shift by Mayor Bibb towards the unions. Interesting. And then there were some statements that Howard made that encouraged more people of color to apply to the police department, but the statements themselves were problematic. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that was more recently. This was a, at, a, at a church on the east side. And, you know, he, he made the point that <clears throat> the department is the way it is now because decades ago, you know, 100 years ago, the Irish had kind of uh, overrun it. Or, you know, I'm not sure what the words he, were, he, he used were, but, but basically, like, you know, in, in the old days, the way that it worked is that there'd be the city would, would you know, be opening up hiring word would go out. And so it would be, you know, family members, friends, it would be people who were in the department would, would let their people know that it's time to apply and there's jobs open. Sure. And so, you know, that's kind of generally how. Word of mouth and nepotism. It's, yeah. It's... Um, and so he was saying at the church, like, if you want to change the character of the police department, one thing that needs to be done is, is to change kind of the makeup of it. And that means having more black people apply. Um, you know, one of the things that he pointed out that you hear a lot, too, from black officers is that, uh, you know, the, the police department has a bagpipe band. And and that is not for for black officer. That's like, well, you know, how does this represent me? How does this have anything to sure. do with me? And so, you know, things like like, like that, um, you know, he, he was just saying that there is a certain character of the department and that's because of its history. Sure. To change a culture, you have to m- maybe change the composition. Yeah. But the police union did not like that. It did not go over well. They were very upset, you know, basically saying, like, you know, what's wrong with the Irish? <laughs> um, and after that, the uh, the patrolman's union had a no confidence vote by a kind of a staggering margin, said that they think that Howard should be gone. Um 
And, you know, that was, I say, a year ago. I, I can't remember the exact date. It, it was not, uh, you know, immediately before his firing, but um, they have long memories in the in the police union. And so, you know, I'm sure that that issue did not go away. If you have any thoughts on, on the topic or a question for Matt, you can call us toll-free, 866-578-0903. I'm talking to Ideastream's criminal justice reporter, Matt Richman, about what is a seemingly sudden resignation of Pub- Public Safety Director Carrie Howard. But as we're discussing, uh, there was uh, longstanding tensions between the safety director and uh, the police unit in itself. And and Matt, would you would you dare to say that maybe uh, kind of this this new resignation and new placement of a safety director is the administration in some respects line aligning itself more with the police union? Um, well, you know they they haven't said anything publicly beyond okay. his his resignation, and you know it was a resignation, not a firing, but it was immediate. Um, so you know I don't want to kind of guess what's in their head. Sure. Sure. Okay. And so what are the next steps with this? Uh, Drummond's chief of staff, Deputy Chief Dorothy Todd tapped as the new chief of police. And then Chief of Police Wayne Drummond is in as the interim public safety director. Will it stay like that? That's a that's a good question. The uh, uh, Chief Dorothy Todd is named as, as the permanent chief of police. Um, and with with Drummond, you know, he's somebody who, from all conversations I have, everybody, re- everybody that I talk to respects him. Nobody, um, you know, kind of uh, says bad words about him. And these these issues that have come up about about discipline, about some of the things that have gone on in the department, um, you haven't seen it directed at Drummond. So um, it'll be interesting to see exactly how far and wide they they search they search for a public safety director. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes, but I do want to ask you, right now we're, uh, the city's going through budget hearings. Mayor Bibb is proposing cutting some of the vacant police jobs, but says that won't affect the size of the force. What do you? What is your reporting telling you about that? Uh, well, so, you know, there have been a lot of changes at the, at the uh, Division of Police. They changed the way that, um, that shifts work. So now it's two 12-hour shifts mm-hmm. as opposed to three shifts a day. Um, and so that makes a big difference because it's just kind of easier to, to fill the shifts every day with, they say, um, you could probably do it with a fewer officers. The, the problem at the police department is that they have not been able to keep up with, with, with the number of officers leaving the uh, department. So, you know, there were 300 some odd openings. The Bibb administration kind of lopped off 148 of those, but there are still 180 openings yeah. that they probably won't be able to fill this year, particularly not if it's going to all come out of the academy. I mean, that would take like, you know, several very well stocked academy classes. How is recruitment going if you had a, a bit to characterize that? Uh, they say that they've been doing much better. I mean, there have been these large raises. There's uh, a better salary for, for cadets while you're in the academy. They've increased the uh, maximum age. There's a $5,000 signing bonus for, for for cadets. They created this one-day hiring event where you can take some of the tests all like in an eight-hour period um, and then get what they call a preconditional offer. So they're trying to shorten the amount of time because it used to be that you send in an application and maybe months down the road you would hear back. So, you know... They say that it's made a big difference already, but, you know, we'll see. All right. Matt Richmond, criminal justice reporter here at IdeaStream Public Media. Always great to have you in studio. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Time now for a break. When we come back, we'll talk about new technology being installed around the state by the Ohio Department of Transportation. The goal is to reduce highway crashes when traffic on the highway slows down or stops. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. You're with the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for being with us this hour. 
The Ohio Department of Transportation is installing new warning technology around the state to give highway drivers more time to prepare for slowing or even stopped traffic. Advanced cameras will monitor traffic in real time and send an alert to a warning sign to inform drivers approaching the area. The idea is to cut down on end-of-queue collisions. According to ODOT, there were more than 8,800 such crashes in 2023 alone. One of those crashes last November claimed the lives of three Tusky Valley students, two chaperones, and a teacher on Interstate 70 in Licking County. Joining me now to discuss the new technology by phone is ODOT's statewide press secretary, Matt Bruning. Matt, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Also with me by phone is Lieutenant Ray Santiago with the Public Affairs Unit Unit of the Ohio State Highway Patrol. Lieutenant, good morning to you as well. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And if you'd like to join the conversation or have a question, call us toll-free, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Matt, I wonder, how does this technology work? How do these cameras see that traffic is slowing down? So what it, it's actually the technology on the back end of the camera. So the camera that we see on ogo.com or the ogo app, uh, we are able to draw a polygon on the highway that is a space that basically when traffic is moving free-flowing, nothing is in that polygon. But when traffic stops and starts to back up and fills that, that area we've designated on the road in the camera, that triggers an alarm in the camera that then automatically will, will display a message on a digital message board about two miles up, upstream from the, from the camera location. It also sends a, a, a notification to our traffic management center in Columbus, and uh, it alerts drivers via the OGO app, other traffic apps as well, that there's slow or stop traffic ahead. The idea is just trying to give you another layer of information that you need to be slowing down as you're approaching that stopped or slowed traffic. So how is this different than what you were using before? Um, and and, and how, do you, how much more effective do you think this might be? Well, the older systems that we used were radar-based and they just were not as reliable. Um, also, we have obviously traffic camera operators in our traffic management center here in Columbus that are, that are monitoring the 1,100 traffic cameras we have across the state 24-7, 365. Obviously, they can't see everything at the same time. So this, will, this is an automated system. So it does not require any interaction from our traffic management center. Is as soon as it detects that slow or stop traffic, it will trigger the alarm that, that pushes the, the message board and the alerts to your traffic apps. So uh, obviously our folks will know about it because they'll, they'll get the alarm, but uh, there's no human interaction that, that's needed to trigger the system. Lieutenant Santiago, we were just talking about that tragic, tragic crash that involved the Tusky Valley students and chaperones and a teacher uh, last year. I'm wondering, can you characterize how much how much of an increase you've seen in distracted driving incidents, people on their phones. I mean, all you need to do is, is look around, whether you're on a surface street or I've seen on a freeway, but people are distracted. Yeah, you know, it's something that we've always seen and we've always been aware of. Um, just last year alone, you know, there's, there's over 9,000 uh, crashes that are, you know, that are associated with uh, distracting driving violations. So what was, you know, it's always been top of mind in trying to reduce serious injury or fatal crashes, which is why the, the, the new law is really uh, helping us be more proactive uh, in trying to, you know, prevent some of these behaviors before tragedies like that happen. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, you know, stories like this come to come to to the, top, to the forefront through tragedy. We want to try to avoid these things and make these topics relevant through, you know, raised awareness, increased education and, and enforcement. So tell me and the listeners a little more about that law and how enforcement of that law is going. Well, previously we had to, it was a secondary violation. So we had to see um, another traffic violation b before we could take enforcement action. So 
if someone was looking down at their phone and ventured out of their lane, um, then we could make the traffic stop. But this new law, uh, as soon as we see someone doing uh, something with their phone that takes their eyes off the road, um, then we can, we can stop them before something tragic happens. Uh, in the first three months, um, our preliminary data shows uh, you know, distracted driving crashes decreased by 15 percent. Uh, so it's definitely having an impact and an effect, and uh, troopers are, are certainly out there uh, enforcing that law. Since October, uh, there was a six-month grace period uh, that began in, in April, and then in October is when we actually took enforcement action. And, and since then, we've written over 6,300 citations uh, for for distracted driving. That's not a, a good thing or something we want to you know, we, we want to do, but when we're seeing a decrease in crashes and an increase in those enforcements, we know that it's having some sort of impact. And Lieutenant, I mean, I'm not sure if you have any data or statistics or science to support, but I mean, it, the the distraction can happen and then the accident can happen a second later. I mean, how much of an impact is there for drivers who look glance away for a second while they're driving on the road? Well, we know that looking down and you know sending or receiving a text message will, will take a driver's eyes off the road for at least 4.6 seconds, right around there. Um, during that time, if you're driving 55 miles per hour, you've just traveled the length of a football field just completely blank. Wow. And I don't know about you, but but you know when we're you know you get up in the middle of the night and you're going from your bed to the to the bathroom. Uh, you know, we all do the zombie walk with your arm out in front of you, and you're you maybe drag your feet a little bit so you don't step on a Lego and we're being that careful knowing that if we stub our toe, we're not going to die from it. But when we put ourselves in the vehicle and we're driving at 55 miles per hour on the highway, um, we still, you know, we'll put our phones down or put our heads down and and drive completely blind knowing that there's a high potential for serious injury or death. So it's just, uh, it's it's some logic that we have to change in trying to get folks to be, um, to make some better decisions behind the wheel for sure. All right. So, Matt, the plan is for 13 of these systems to go up statewide. How did ODOT determine the locations for this initial stage? And is there plans for it to increase? Yeah. So obviously we want to see how these 13 perform uh, first and then certainly we'll, we'll look at expansion. But they were chosen because these are locations where we have seen uh, a frequency of, you know, slowed or stopped traffic. We see congestion frequently in these locations. We see crashes at these locations. Uh, and many times they're what we call end of queue crashes. So it's it's someone running into the back of the stopped traffic ahead. Right. And so that's where we thought, well, maybe this will make a, a difference. Uh, it's about a 16% reduction in crashes that we think we'll see from this system. Uh, we'd obviously like it to be higher than that. Uh, but it, again, it's just another layer of awareness that we're giving drivers. And we so we thought that these locations would be the most impactful. Let's take a call. Morgan from Akron calling into Sound of Ideas. Good morning, Morgan. Go ahead. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. I just want to make sure that I fully understand how this system works. You said, I believe, that you're going to have 13 of these systems uh, distributed along major areas of the highways. Does that mean that there will only be 13 of these physical banners that warn drivers to the uh, uh, possible uh, traffic problem up ahead? Is that how it works? Thanks, Morgan, for the call. Matt, I'll let you explain. Yeah, so uh, the the message boards will be displayed in these 13 locations. There's the cameras that trigger them. And so that is really kind of what uh, the system will look like. Uh, It's not too different than the systems that you see out there right now on our highways. We have uh, more than 160 digital message boards out there across the state as it is. These will just be additional message boards that uh, will be automatically triggered by these camera systems that will will display a message that says something like stop traffic ahead, slow traffic ahead, something like that. So Matt, I wonder what was the impetus for uh, the creation of these systems or at least implementing them now um, at all affected by uh, the Tuskegee Valley charter bus uh, crash? Did that put more urgency on this rollout? It did a little bit. I mean, that section of I-70 was already on our radar uh, out in Licking County as a a potential location for, uh, you know, additional uh, improvements 
to try to address some of the congestion that we see out there. Uh, obviously, the Tusky Valley crash expedited the, the need to do something. And honestly, uh, the stars all aligned for us at that location. We already had power. We already had a data connection. Um, I don't know how often you see the signs as you drive across the state, but there are uh, messages, our message boards that we have. They're actually fixed signs that show how many truck parking spaces are ahead at, at a select number of our rest areas. There was a sign already there for that that we just removed and put this digital message board in uh, that we actually moved up from our Athens County area. Uh, so it was available. Uh, our crews were available to do the work. The infrastructure was all in place, and it all worked out great that we could turn it around very quickly. John wrote in saying you can install as many signs and warnings as you'd like, but until drivers start paying attention like they're supposed to, no amount of pre-warning will make a difference, in my opinion. Let's go ahead and take a call from Steve calling in from Heath this morning. Hi, Steve. Hello. Go ahead. I was uh, got on 70 at 79 and headed east. When I got to close to Zanesville, and this was about five miles west of Zanesville, I'm on my motorcycle, and I come up over a rise. When I just come up over the rise, yeah, and there's a lot of those hills right there, I saw a stopped semi about 100 yards. Once I got over that rise, I had about 100 yards to slow down from 70. That was all I could do to get to the right-hand side and not hit him in the butt. My thought was, if there are those situations, and this was caused by another semi that went down in the blue tire and all the construction that was going on, if a, a patrol car would have sat at the top of that ridge with their lights on, I, I wouldn't need a message. Just having that patrol car there announcing that there's something going on, I mean, everybody stops when they see that and pulls over. But it was a good five miles west of Zanesville, and I thought for sure I was going to end up hitting that truck. And I've been driving a motorcycle since 72. I'm not stupid. And that was something that surprised the crap out of me. I thought I was going to hit that truck. Well, Steve, uh, certainly glad that uh, everything ended up okay. And uh, thank you so much for your comment, Lieutenant. I'm wondering, you know, the uh, the troopers can't be at all places at once. And, 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 and again, you know, the rollout of this board system is at 13 locations thus far. So what about kind of more enforcement and presence of law enforcement uh, to, to have some sort of deterrent effect on um, drivers? Well, we certainly are, are doing some of that. In his particular situation, uh, you know, this is this is why exactly why collaborations uh, with our fellow safety service partners are so important. Um, you know, there, that, that was five miles away where he was. He started to see some of that traffic backed up, which is what you know what ODOT is referring to as end of queue. Um, and I'm sure there was a, a trooper or a, you know a law enforcement or some sort of first responder with that commercial vehicle that was way further ahead. And, you know, we have to respond to that initial location first um, to make sure that that person is okay. And unfortunately, we know, um, you know, not everyone stops or moves over and slows down for those, uh, for, for our, our flashing lights or for our roadway workers. Uh, so it's, it's extra important for us to get to those individuals that need aid um, as soon as we can. So in addition to that, you know, being data driven, um, one thing that you've heard Matt refer to is you know looking at locations where you know the, the first 13 of, of their sign boards are going to be implemented. We do the same thing and be taking a data driven approach and looking at areas where we see certain types of crashes, uh, higher likelihood of violations. Those are all things that we take into account when we are putting troopers in certain spots and allocating resources and working with our fellow partners to try to have an impact on some of those crash-causing variables. Folks can actually see some of what we're doing and what those efforts look like if they visit statepatrol.ohio.gov and click on our dashboards uh, link where we have you know, uh, dashboards that show folks exactly what we're doing and seeing uh, related to OVIs and distracted driving um, and work zone safety, which we are going to be coming up into uh, here shortly with a break in the weather and change into spring. So uh, we, we are definitely doing some of exactly what you just said.
And Matt, 30 seconds uh, for this answer, but again, it's 13 locations that will eventually be implemented. Is that right? You're installing them one at a time? That's correct. The first one has already been installed by our forces. The rest will have to be contracted out. So we hope to have everything up and running within the next couple of years. Well, I thank you both for your time and uh, for the information. It applies to all of us. So uh, appreciate you uh, coming on this morning. Matt Bruning from ODOT and Lieutenant Santiago of the Ohio State Highway Patrol. Thanks to both of you. Absolutely. Appreciate thank the opportunity. Time now to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk to the coach of the Brexville Broadview Heights Bees gymnastics team. They are looking for their 21st consecutive state title. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. It's the sound of ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. It sounds like fiction. A high school gymnastics team winning a state title not once, not twice, not three times, but 20 years in a row. But sometimes fact is more unbelievable and awe-inspiring than fiction. This Saturday, the Brexville Broadview Heights Bees will be competing for their 21st consecutive straight title at the Ohio High School Athletic Association Gymnastics State Tournament. It's the longest state winning streak on record. So what makes a team great for this long? What is in the secret sauce to be able to compete at such a high level in a sport that's incredibly competitive and synonymous with the word pressure? Of course, you have to have self-motivated gymnasts who are dedicated to their sport, but you also need coaches guiding and supporting these athletes. What I saw after spending an afternoon watching the Brexville Bees practice earlier this month is that this success is driven in large part by the coaching family that created a home for these gymnasts decades ago that allows them to become strong physically and mentally. Joining me now in studio to talk about the team and her family's coaching philosophy is Maria Schneider, head coach of the Brexville Bees. Maria, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Don't be nervous. We're just going to have a good, fun conversation. All right. So if you'd like to join the conversation, have a question for Maria, you can call us toll-free, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We are at The Sound of Ideas. All right, Maria. So the state championship is this weekend. How are you feeling? I'm feeling, as I typically do, nervous, you know, just it's that, like, unknown. You know, what is it going to be? A week from now, we'll know. I mean, we'll know Saturday night, (laughs) that result. So just, you know, nerve-wracking, but also excitement also that these girls are getting another opportunity. And I want to play a clip from one of the teammates, Jeannie, Mm -hmm. Jeannie Winson. Yes. And she had this to say about the pressure being put on the team when it comes to going for the 21st state title. My friends at school, they're always like, are you guys going to win? Like, are you guys going to keep winning? And everybody like at school knows that we have like this streak going. And they're kind of like, you guys can't lose. Like, you guys. And just like random people come up to me, I'll say like, I'm on the beast team. They're like, oh my God, that's a team with like that insane streak. I'm like, yeah. And it's just kind of crazy. But yeah, past gymnasts, definitely like now it's like on you guys like when they graduate they're like we did ours now you guys have to keep it going (laughs) so it's stressful what do you say to that it's like I'll try my best (laughs) we'll try I've got to say Maria even delivering my introduction to our conversation I felt like I was adding to that pressure just by talking about the facts I mean yeah how enormous is that pressure and how do you let that in some respects slide off your back and how do you encourage the girls to also deal with it That is hard. They always want to be the team that doesn't end the streak. But as we continue to tell them, it's not if if that ever comes to be, uh, which obviously we hope not. It's nothing about their it's not their fault. It's nothing that they did wrong. It's just another team happened to be better that day. Mm -hmm. And we should be gracious in that effort that. They have been trying to beat us, you know, for quite a long time. And and it happened. And um We'll walk away with it with no regrets that we gave it our all. Has there been any changes in approach in just 
the last two weeks when you do gear up for something that has, you know, high stakes like a state championship? Yeah. Uh, yes, a lot more, you know, uh, pressure on the – not pressure. What's the word I want to use? Emphasis. That's the word. On their the mental health part and, you know, just practicing what we've been talking about with the um, – imagery, meditation, breathing exercises, all of that leading into what can we do when we're here and our event doesn't go our way? How do we let that go and move on and not allow it to carry over into our next events and things like that? So tell me some strengths and maybe areas that you're working on when it comes to different events for this particular team this year. Okay. Um, our strengths are we have a deep team. You know, our they count six girls go up. Four of the scores count. So we are very um, grateful that we have that opportunity that if, you know, one of the girls does not perform at their best, we have five other routines that can potentially count into, you know, our team score that are not going to be, um, that are going to be up there and score. And and we're very uh, grateful for that opportunity that we have, you know, in some of our events, we could put eight girls on that can score around the same. And what kinds of events are we talking about for those not as familiar with gymnastics? Yeah. So vault, uh, which is the table that you uh, run down and punch the board over, uh, the uneven bars, and the balance beam, which is not that wide. And, you know, the event that um, can make or break a competition because it's so easy to fall off of other than others. And then the floor exercise. Are you rooting for the Brexville Bees? Do you want to talk to Maria? Please call us toll-free, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org. So when we're talking about 20 straight state titles going for your 21st, this story does not start with you. It really starts with your parents. And even their love story revolved around gymnastics in some way. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your parents, Joan and Ron, and how they met? Yeah, they met uh, at Kent State University on a blind date. And um, my dad would start coming to, my mom was a gymnast on the team back then. And he showed up to practices and uh, the late Rudy Bachna, who was my uncle Rudy and Janet, were the coaches then. And they said, you're either going to learn how to coach you're going to do it or you got to walk away so he tried he tried it was because he was just lingering yeah because he would just hang out there at the practice uh he was a football player uh had just transferred from toledo uh after two years there and then um so he started learning how to coach it with rudy bachna and uh and the rest was history there you know they she always wanted to open up a dance studio and then when she lost her job because she had children as a mm. PE and health teacher, wow. her principal told her, you know, you have to do something else. That's where the gymnastics world came in to be. That was a, a different time. <laughs> oh, it sure was. Yeah. <laughs> so they open Gym World. Mm-hmm. And I know that there were two different locations. Yeah. But the one that they opened in the 1980s, your dad had a specific room built in that gym just to focus on mental health. So tell me a little bit about that and Ron's vision for uh, having gymnasts also deal with the inside of, you know, what's going on in their body. Absolutely. I I tease myself that I probably was their, you know, example of how to get you know, I had a lot of fears as a gymnast. And okay. so I and I think there was a lot that I still never really completely dealt with as a gymnast. And so I think it gave him some motivation to get into that classroom setting because it psychobabble wasn't in existence when I was there. But he started to, that process because he was he's a teacher. He was a health teacher. That was his way of connecting with the gymnast more than anything was uh talking to them. He loved to talk and help them through whatever they needed. And did he do that for you as a dad? So you're saying that you were a gymnast in high school mm-hmm. and you're dealing with what? The pressure? Was it stressful? I mean, not of all of us are in that space. So why don't you describe what it was like for you as a right. gymnast in your teens? Yeah. Uh, I had this enormous fear of going backwards. Still do. But, you know, I think every gymnast any athlete lives in a fear of. That's our our body's fight, flight, freeze, 
um, you know, what our system does to us. If fear of success, fear of, you know, falling, fear of, oh, if I do well, now what are they going to think of me? You know, so, but mine was just something I, I still dealt with all through college, you know, yeah. two years of college gymnastics. And then I just, I, I kind of gave up on it from there because it just wasn't for me working. And that's where my dad and then with me taking over the psychobabble class, wanting to just help these girls work through those and, and give them strategies. But that was really ahead of his time. And we know that finally the gymnastics world is really yeah. paying attention to um, mental health and a person a person being grounded both mentally and physically and yeah. safe in their surroundings. But was that being talked about at all? No. At the time? No, no. Back in the day. No, it was starting to come, you know, you know, that you saw, started to see some sports psychologists come to be. And, you know, I could remember listening to a tape that you would rewind and then forward every night to try to help me to get down. But it really just, uh, he really did, was ahead of the times, I think, with that. And what do you think his philosophy was? That you're not going to do well in the world or you're not going to do well on a high beam or whatever it is without right. a good headspace? Yeah. It, their philosophy has always been teach the student first, then the athlete. And what does that teach, mean? It means teach the kid first. Help them. The, it, gymnastics is not the only thing that's part of their life. So there's so much more beyond just the sport. And so if you only focus on the sport that they're doing, you're not going to get the best version of who they are as an athlete. You've got you have to know that so many other things are going on. And you know, I I start to think what would he be thinking right now with how much more pressure is on these kids outside of their sports. They are overworked, overwhelmed with the things that they have to do in life. So do you try to keep it light? Absolutely. You have to. You know, you don't want to. I think I keep it light. You know, I guess the girls could answer that the best. But yeah, absolutely. You got to just go in with it and and let it go if something doesn't go your way and be able to just block that out and move forward. Well, I know you have a great relationship with your girls. They told me that they started, I guess, a couple years ago calling you Schneidy. So I don't think I'm at that level, so I'll still call you Maria. Again, if you want to talk to Maria or have a question, the toll-free number, 866-578-0903, or you can email us at soi at ideastream.org. So I'm wondering... Your dad had a huge impact on a lot of the girls that came up through the gymnastics team. Some of them even got tattoos dedicated to him. Is that right? Yeah. That was a surprise for me. Like, girls are getting tattoos about something my dad told them, you know, and I'm like, he's my dad. But that, you know, it's actually <laughs> like, and I don't have one, but I just choose not to get a tattoo. Sure. And I just thought, wow, the impact that he really did have on these gymnasts just went far beyond their sport because now they were they're adults and they're doing this and and they still reach back out and you know it was just the outpouring of love when he passed away was just beyond my mom my brothers and I like we just had no idea well let's play a, a cut from Leah Haverville another one of your seniors about the fact that she said before she even joined the high school team, she did three years of psychobabble with you. So mm -hmm. that mental health component between you and one of your top performers uh, happened even before they uh, joined the team. Let's hear her. Psychobabble we did once a week. Um, it was basically like 30 minutes before practice. We went into, we have a psychobabble room and we did like, like the whole, we blocked out gymnastics, we just focused all on our mental um, point of view. And so we did a lot of visualization, closing your eyes, um, visualizing your routine, visualizing your gymnastics. We did a lot of meditation, like cooling your mind. We did like vision boards. We did a lot of like things like mentally because most people like, this sport's like 80% mental. And I think most teams like, that's, that's what they don't have. Like being able to have that psychobabble and being able to train our minds to be able to do this definitely helps a lot. And I think Leah recognizes something. Do you think other 
you know, we can't we can't just guess, but other gymnastics teams, other sports outfits are putting this much focus on mental health. I mean, it really seems to be part of that secret sauce in the Brexville Bee's success. Yeah. What do you think of that? Um, I do think, you know, I don't I can't speak on the other teams. Sure. I'm sure they do some sort of mental health aspect um, in some ways, whether it's, you know, motivating the girls or, you know, with quotes and and practices like we do, uh, the goal setting, things like that. Um, but I definitely think it does help because, you know, when I hear the girls, um, we did a documentary last year that's sure. going to be coming out. And one of the little clips that I heard in like the five minute splice, they were saying to each other in the huddle mindset. It's all about the mindset. Oh. And I thought, Okay. You know, like I wasn't in that huddle. It was just like a little clip I saw from the, you know, documentary that uh, is. <laughs> so I was happy to hear that. And hearing Leah just now just say about how she knows that 80% of this sport is the mental. And for her to be able to recognize that and share that, you know, right there, it helps me to know they are listening up there. <laughs> Right. And, and you never you know, especially yeah. with young people, they're listening, they're absorbing, and, and you don't know how that necessarily translates or they turn it into their own thing, Absolutely. which is which is great. Uh, let's take a call from Cheryl in Shaker Heights calling this morning. Cheryl, go ahead. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm just blown away by this by this record that that your team has. Um my daughter was in so many sports over the years and just I was always so disappointed by the coaching like I didn't feel like these coaches understood how important they were in these girls lives and I just I want to encourage you or your family just to write a book about how you coach because I'm I'm really just uh I'm blown away oh thank you I appreciate that a lot um yes it is Definitely. It's hard because a lot of times as a coach, you get wrapped up in the sport that you're doing rather than remembering that they are kids still. So, yeah, Marie, uh, Cheryl, thanks for, for that call and that great comment. And it's true. It really is awe-inspiring to, to, to hear what you're doing and the success that you've had. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, some of it's got to be about the hours put in and, and the yeah. self-motivation, right? You can only, oh, you can only and the talent. So, I know that a lot of people have this question. Are you recruiting uh, <laughs> athletes to come to your neighborhood? I, I know that some yeah. are moving to the neighborhood yeah. to be on the team. Right. Well, and that's the thing is they start to see or they start out as gymnasts, you know, young. They're not thinking about where what they're going to do in high school. But, yes, absolutely. There have been families that have purposely moved to the Brexel Broadview Heights School District because of the gymnastics program as well as the academics. You know, it's a strong school with academics. Um, we don't rec – we're not able to recruit. That's against the law, you know. And, and uh, no, it's it's kind of just because of what we've produced as a team, and, and it's them wanting to be a B and being part of that program. And it's really cool to see as a public school, especially. And really, Gym World, from my visiting you guys, I realized this isn't just about the high school team. No. Your biggest competitor in competition also practices at, at your facility over from Magnificat? Magnificat. One of the top girls on the Magnificat. The top, yes, she's from Gym World. She's a, a level 10 gymnast there. And a girl, a, one of their other top girls was on our club team up until last year and then joined our high school. So, yeah, we have a lot of the gymnasts from other schools that are part of our club team. And it's really and that right there is because of our club coaches. It's their success. I, I loved I'm I'm here with you in studio and, and I'm getting to talk about this team, but it it takes a village, that word. And it's those coaches that have been with them since day one in the gym. Like you said, it goes beyond just what we were saying. It is their talent and their their vision there. So All right, Maria, we have unfortunately about a minute left, but okay. I want you to take this minute to talk to the girls on your team about this Saturday and beyond and just give them kind of a message uh, in our studio. Well, I might cry about that well, then, okay. right? No. I like it's here. <laughs> um, they just have to go out there and give it their best. They know what resilience is. Resilience is such a big part of life. And, and if something doesn't go their way, how to bounce back and move forward. 
And if we go in with our confidence that we've had these last couple of weeks since districts, I, I'm feeling confident in them and I'm really proud of them, irregardless of the results. But I, of course, hope to see us back on that award stand in first. And, and if not, that's okay. It's not gonna be the end of the world. Life moves on and we still have some great memories together. Maria Schneider, head coach for the Brexville Bees gymnastic team, going for your 21st state title this weekend. I'm glad to have met you. Thank you so much for coming into our studio, and good luck this weekend. Thank you for having me, Jenny. Absolutely. Now to get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter now, X, at Sound of Ideas, and you can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. You can also now follow me on Instagram because this morning I created a new Instagram account. It is Jenny Hamill Idea Stream. I'm going to be posting a video of that uh, afternoon I spent with the Brexville Bees gymnastics team. So please follow me. I have one follower now, and I hope to have a couple more. Tomorrow on The Sound of Ideas, we'll check with Ideastream Public Media's education reporter, Connor Morris. He's going to be talking all about that budget shortfall faced not only by Cleveland schools, but some of the cuts being considered at Northeast Ohio colleges and universities. If you missed any portion of this program, you can find us online or listen to The Sound of Ideas podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 p.m., on 89.7 WKSU, I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for listening, and I will speak with you again tomorrow. The Sound of Ideas is produced by Rachel Rood, Lee Barr, Drew Mazius, and Jay Shaw. Chris Dudley and Samson Albel provide technical assistance. Jay Nungesser is at the controls of the Ohio Channel broadcast. And our host is Jenny Hamill. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to 89.7 WKSU Kent, a public media service licensed to Kent State University and operated by IdeaStream Public Media. WKSU serves Northeast Ohio through HD and on WCPN Lorraine Cleveland 104.9, WKRW Worcester 89.3, WKRJ New Philadelphia 91.5, WKSV Thompson 89.1, and WNRK Norwalk 90.7.